Hello and welcome to Safe Talk. I'm Danny Smith. Today we're going to talk about the safety implications of the Peter Principle. Before I introduce our guest, let me first introduce the principle itself. The idea was popularized in 1968, appropriately enough, by one Lawrence J. Peter in a book by the same name, The Peter Principle. And Dr. Peter said he was taught as a kid to believe that the men upstairs knew what they were doing. And he did believe them. That is, until he noticed that, well, some of the people in charge didn't really know what they were doing. Peter started noticing some contradictions uh, as well. He, he saw signs on the door that said, emergency exit, authorized personnel only. And then another that said, emergency exit, not to be used under any circumstances. And I bet most of us, as people who look out for other safety, probably have similar stories, maybe even more than one. Uh, at a library, he even noticed that all the books on pregnancy were placed on the bottom shelf. Probably the people that need them most couldn't even see them. And speaking of things being placed on the bottom shelf, uh, most of our listeners know that I'm a large guy, and I can understand this problem all too well. I mean, I've often wondered who had the brilliant idea to put all the big boy pants on the bottom shelf. I mean, do I really have to bend all the way over and next to the floor to get the size I need? Shouldn't those really go up top? I mean, and speaking of the idea of big clothes, I mean, we've we've all heard the very legitimate complaints from women safety professionals and women and ladies in the industry, period, who have pointed out that PPE is most often sized not for them, but for larger men like me. And one size does not fit most, much less fit all. It seems like there may have been some incompetence in play in those situations as well. Now, as for the Peter Principle itself, he explained it in a 1973 interview with the BBC. And then as I looked around, I saw that very often competent people, the competent individual, was promoted to something he couldn't do. I saw a competent mechanic where he used to take my car. He was terrific. He was very responsible, very precise, knew exactly what he was doing, so they made him foreman. Now he's no longer fixing cars and he's trying to manage other, the other mechanics. And he's very incompetent, he doesn't do this well. He's really a competent mechanic and an incompetent foreman. This led Dr. Peters ultimately to the formulation of his most famous concept, just for fun and to make clear how far back this idea really goes. We've left in the audio of the, well, funky early computer era transition music here. Enjoy. And over and over again, I saw this, this phenomenon, and I called it the Peter Principle. The Peter Principle states very simply that in any hierarchy, an employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence. And that's where he stays. You see, in any organization where competence is essentially eligibility for promotion and incompetence is a bar to promotion, wherever those rules apply, people will rise to their level of incompetence and tend to stay there. Now that I've introduced the principle itself, 
Let me introduce today's guest. He is certainly not incompetent to the task. Rod Wagner is a New York Times bestselling author and a columnist for Forbes. One of his books was even parodied in Dilbert. That says a lot right there. That may give us some material as we talk about incompetence, for sure. He also serves as an executive advisor at Safe Start. So if, if you sense in our conversation that we have some personal chemistry based on past collaborations, we do. And Rod, welcome back. Thank you, Danny. And thank you for setting the bar low. Um, I'll endeavor today to be <laughs> not incompetent. Not incompetent. Yeah, that's a that's a bar to clear it. And it, some days it feels like I've got to make over that, doesn't it? Just don't want us overreaching a bit here today, for sure. I mentioned that you write for Forbes, and that's very relevant today because we wanted to have you join us to talk about one of your columns from Forbes from April of 2018 entitled, New Evidence, the Peter Principle is Real and What to Do About It. Since then, uh, I noticed that if someone Googles Peter Principle, your column's the first article that pops up. So what really was it that prompted you to write that piece? Yeah, I was surprised that the topic hit such a nerve. But I guess the question that people have about supervisors, like where did they find this guy, uh, is, is pretty much perennial. One of the best lines in the book is, the cream rises until it sours. Now, the concept is funny, but the reality for those unfortunately to run into it, it is not. This book and the so-called principle have always intrigued me. Uh, it's, it's not clear just how much he was joking. His evidence came from the, quote, hypothetical case file, close quotes, and it was populated by employees right out of a children's parable. Uh, so he called them Miss uh, Oval and Mrs. Cylinder and Mr. Eclipse, Mr. Cube, Mr. Sphere, <laughs> and Mr. Tinker. The book sold over a million copies and stayed on the bestseller list in the United States for 33 weeks. It, it did not achieve that level of success strictly for its humor. Yet I'd say that uh, principle was too strong of a word. Dr. Peter's observation has what we researchers call face validity. In other words, it seems to make sense, but it was at best a theory. That's really the odd thing about I guess you could say parables are fiction, isn't it? The story might be too simplified to be true, but the forces at play are very real. And you find yourself saying, I think I know Mr. Ellipse. <laughs> I think I worked with him before. So is the Peter Principle really still just a theory? Well, not as much. Part of what got me on the topic was some statistical analyses conducted by three academic researchers, specifically about salespeople and sales managers. In fact, it was one of the scenarios that Lawrence Peter describes in that old interview. I also observed that a competent salesman, a man who is just terrific at dealing with people, a great personality, very popular, well-liked, good at selling, personally. Uh, his sales were so good that uh, they made him sales manager. And in this position, he'd found his level of incompetence because he was atrocious at the paperwork, at uh, atrocious at designing the uh, territories for his salesmen. In other words, he was not good at dealing through other people or organizing other people. 
Three professors took on this question. They're Alan Benson from the University of Minnesota, go Gophers, uh, Daniel Lee of MIT, and Kelly Hsu of Yale. They analyzed the performance of 53,035 sales employees at 214 American companies from 2005 to 2011. During that time, 1,531 of those sales reps were promoted to become sales managers. The data show that the best salespeople were more likely to A, be promoted, and B, perform poorly as managers. While the data do not support Lawrence Peter's adjective of atrocious on average, they do support his hypothesis. In other words, a half century, a full half century after publication of the book, it appears the Peter principle is real. So were the three professors really surprised by the results that they find? I guess would be the next question I'd have. Yeah, they were. I interviewed Dr. Benson shortly after he and his collaborators published their results. And he said, I expected that the best salespeople would become merely good managers. Some skills translate to management and others don't, he said. To see that the best salespeople were becoming the worst sales managers was surprising. But these were salespeople, though. It's not like they forgot to sell how to sell, right? But do we know if the uh, Peter Principle applies to other occupations? No, we don't. Uh, this research took advantage of the fact that the performance of salespeople is relatively easy to quantify. I've heard senior executives refer to their sales forces as coin-operated people, as, as if they were a different species, which they're not. Still... I don't think that changes the strategic implications for a business. Make sure you're promoting people who are well-prepared to manage a team and support them well in those unique responsibilities. Absolutely. That, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, here at, at my house, uh, I don't know how it is at yours, Rod, but uh, we are really, really big fans of one-liners from movies. I always say that our family communicates in movie quotes. And uh, I'm reminded as you talk about the Peter Principle of a line from uh, that great Clint Eastwood movie, Dirty Harry. Man's got to know his limitations. Of course, as safety professionals, I, I guess we should also probably mention situational awareness there. Uh, you might want to check the car you're taking away from somebody for bombs before you drive off. And, and speaking of situational awareness and safety, uh, how does the Peter Principle apply to safety management? Let me start with the research. We know that engaged employees are roughly 70% less likely to have an accident than the most frustrated employees. It's a lot of fingers and concussions and even lives saved from having a great workplace. We also know that engagement is heavily driven, some would argue even primarily driven, by the attentiveness and responsiveness of one's manager. So managers drive engagement and engagement drives safety, therefore, if I'm applying correctly what my logic professor taught me, managers drive safety. Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but let me just interject the favorite question from my four-year-old grandson here. Those that are grandparents can probably relate to this one. Why? Uh, why is it and what's happening differently at sites where managers are, shall we say, on top of their game? It's a host of 
causes and effects. But if you look at the aspects of safety culture we measure in the Safe Start Human Factors Assessment, every one of them happens better with a dedicated manager. People who see their manager invested in their safety are more likely to speak up if they see a hazard. Levels of teamwork, which includes everything from holding the ladder for a coworker to sharing good ideas, are higher. An attentive manager is more likely to recognize when someone is distracted by something outside of work. Great managers take more time to mentor new people. People who are well-managed sleep longer and better. I could keep going, but you get the idea. So do you have any theories about why this, uh, this doesn't happen universally, shall we say? Well, I do. Uh, they run parallel to the Peter principle, uh, but I do want to be careful here. There's an implicit idea in his comments and a lot of others out there that great managers are born, not made. Uh, that you either have or don't have empathy and attentiveness and persuasiveness or interpersonal skills. Or to put it in Dilbert terms, incompetence is inherent. Wally, would you? Oh, never mind. I see that you're radiating an aura of extreme incompetence. You forgot to turn off your aura. It takes a minute to cool down. I've long argued, starting with my first book in 2006, that being a great accountant doesn't make you a great manager of accountants, that being an advertising genius doesn't make you a great manager of creatives, and most important for our discussion, being an awesome frontline operator does not make you a competent supervisor of other operators. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, just thinking about that, I know I know a person who was uh, placed in charge of a group of engineers, but he himself was not an engineer at the time. Uh, but he he did a really great job there because he was a solid manager. He was a great leader. Uh, so even though he didn't have to be a great engineer uh, to run that department and to manage that group and to lead that group, uh, he just needed to be a great leader. Are there some specific prerequisites you would note that are required to be a, a competent supervisor? I only see one. That's the desire to take managing seriously. If a person doesn't really care, details of your incompetence do not interest me. Like Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada, people are going to be disengaged. And in a dangerous environment, all the data say people are more likely to get hurt. But assuming you have the heart of a great manager, you can become one. Uh, the problem is that we in corporate America like to assume that managing comes naturally, that humans should come pre-programmed to do it well. You know, one of the things I always say with that, Rod, you hear people say, or, or the great debate, I guess, as we talked about a moment ago, are managers or leaders born or trained? You know, I think we as a nation right now, we're turning out a, a lot of really good managers, but maybe not so many great leaders anymore. And that, I think, is part of the problem, too, right? Uh, you know, it does seem strange to me, given that we don't expect people to be electricians or welders or or all platform workers without first training them. But we do that with leaders, right? Well, exactly. And what that means is that when you promote someone to a supervisory role without preparing her or him for those responsibilities, you're making the Peter principle self-fulfilling. 
you haven't necessarily promoted that person to a level of incompetence so much as promoted them to circumstances of unpreparedness. That makes perfect sense. So for those who are not aware, we as at Safe Start run a program called Safe Lead that both prepares people to be managers and it teaches them how to specialize in keeping employees safe. It teaches them good, solid leadership principles, right? And Rod, as an expert on leadership and managing, uh, how does safety leadership really fit into the broader landscape of how companies are run? I focus a lot in my advisory work and my publishing on what's sometimes called the social contract at work. Every job is an exchange, starting with money for time. Uh, The job pays $30 money an hour, time. Uh, But humans being humans, the contract is more complicated than that. The company wants more than just time. It wants creativity, perhaps, or dedication to customers, or sticking it out through tough times. Employees want more than just money. They want a sense of progress, the chance to learn. Uh, They want work-life balance. Most important, they need physical safety. Not losing a hand in the machinery, for example, is a foundational part of that social contract. As we've already mentioned, frontline supervisors play an outsized role in keeping workers safe. But they're not going to keep them as safe as they could unless they are trained to specialize in human nature, human factors, if you will, on the job. You know, it's it's often been said, uh, and get your take on this as well here, Rod, uh, it's often been said that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers or leave leaders would be another way to put that. Uh, and if that leader is not making them feel safe, not building an environment or for, for another kind of a word to throw in here, a climate or a culture, I guess it's actually two words, isn't it? Uh, but if, if that manager, that leader is not developing a climate and a culture where that employee feels safe on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis, that's certainly going to, to have an impact on whether or not they stay there, whether or not they're happy there, and ultimately on whether or not they get injured there, right? Yeah, that particular bromide has really caught fire. People join companies and leave managers. Uh, in my research, I've found that to not be universally true that people often join companies and they often leave managers, but they sometimes, when the the leadership of the company is not strategizing properly, they'll um, they'll leave the company. But that having been said, managers, frontline managers are in a unique position. They are deputized, authorized to have the company's resources uh, within their authority to be able to deploy them on behalf of the employees. At the same time, hopefully, their span of control is such that they would be able to individualize, to know what this employee or this employee or this employee needs to be most effective and most safe at work. So because of that intersection of company authority and personalization, they are in a unique position to be able to to look out for employees and make them as effective and safe as possible. Absolutely. That, that makes great sense to me too. I mean, if it's uh, if we can train the leader, the manager, the supervisor themselves, 
first of all, how to look out for the employee, how to recognize some of those safety issues that are out there, but also how to just be engaging with that uh, employee on a day-to-day basis uh, so that they, you know, they get the employee to understand that they, I don't want to sound all touchy-feely here, but just that they are cared for and that they are, that they, you know, they are important. That certainly plays a large, large role in that, I think, as well. And I think that's one of the things that we can teach with our, our safely process, not to be hyping just a product here, but certainly I think that's something we can help with with that. Yeah, you know, it's a huge part of the, the social contract, someone who sure. is looking out for you as an individual. Some years back, I was speaking to an all-manager meeting of, of one of my clients, and I had a very young employee come up to me, let's say mid-20s or so. And he said, can I talk to you privately? I said, sure, what's up? He says, um, I've just been promoted to being a manager and I am really worried. I said, okay, what are you worried about? He says, I'm worried that I'm going to mess up. I'm worried that I won't do what my people need from me. And I said, you know what? You're going to be just fine. He said, why do you think so? I said, because you're worried about it. Because I can tell by your question that you are dedicated to doing the right thing for your employees. And a number of managers, uh, unfortunately, a number of people who are in that position don't have that, um, that foundational empathy and concern for, the, I would argue it's actually a stewardship that you have for people that becomes exceptionally serious when you're in an industrial environment where people could get uh, hurt or killed. But if someone has that foundational empathy, that means that they can be trained to be a great manager. A lot of what's required to be a great manager is uh, follow through, sitting down, talking with your people on a regular basis, being responsive when they say, boy, my job would go a lot easier if I had this particular resource. The manager saying, okay, let me see what I can do to get that for you. So it's not, um, it's not rocket science. It is, however, hard work, and it does require uh, follow through. And relative to safety, it does require an ability to understand the, the interchange between human nature and uh, hazardous environments. What happens when you take a flesh and blood individual and put him or her in an environment where there are caustics, where there are um, uh, chemicals under, under high pressure or water, that uh, is steam inside the, inside the pipes where there are forklifts, crushing risks, all the things that we typically talk about in a safety environment. Uh, frontline managers, to be as effective as possible, need to be specialists, experts, if you will, frontline experts on that, uh, that combination of very vulnerable individuals you know, physically vulnerable individuals up against unforgiving machinery, chemicals, heat, height, all those kinds of things. You know, it's interesting as you were talking about the young manager approaching you, the young supervisor approaching you, I, it, it kind of drew me back in my mind to, to my early days of, of managing uh, processes and leading people, uh, which I think is a key way to look at that. Uh, I've heard numerous people talk about that. You don't really manage people, you, you lead people, right? Uh, and I, I think back of my early days as being a supervisor and uh, like a lot of folks just didn't have a lot of practical experience as a as a leader, as a manager. 
Uh, and uh, frankly, I don't know if I would want to work for me. <laughs> you know, if I if I, if I had to work for young me, I don't know if I would want to work for me. Uh, but uh, now that I look back, I was you know, I learned and I acquired skills so that I could be a good manager. And uh, I think one of the one of the greatest compliments, if I can toot my own horn for a moment, uh, was talking to a, a lady who used to work for me at another position. And uh, she she was talking about her current position and how much she liked it. And she, she told me, she said, but honestly, she said, it's not quite like working for you. You were by far the best manager I've ever had. You were the best boss I've ever had. And I just want you to know I appreciate that. And this has been, you know, uh, six, eight, ten years ago that she worked for me. So uh, that to me, that was confirmation to me that I'd learned, you know, I, I was, I, I had learned how to be a good manager and how to care for people. And that was, uh, that was critical. And, and I think that was just a, an incredible compliment. I, and again, not to toot my own horn, but, uh, like I said, you, most people probably would not have wanted to work for young Danny for sure. I don't know that Danny would want to work for young Danny as a supervisor. So, well, my suspicion is that if I were to interview the people who you first managed, um, they might say, as I know the people that I first managed would say, um, hey, you're a little clumsy. Um, you had a lot to learn, but you seem to care about us. Uh, my first managing experience was when I was promoted from being a reporter to being a, a frontline editor. Uh, I did have the advantage that journalists are brutally candid what passes for employee feedback in a newsroom would be gross insubordination in most other environments. Uh, but you do learn where you've perhaps not done things um, as well as you should have. But I too have had some people who I've stayed in touch with from way back when, and they've said, you know, I, I, pr I appreciate that you were looking out for me and, uh, and I enjoyed it and it advanced my career. And it's extremely fulfilling. And I think that's, if if someone listening says, boy, I'd, I'd like to be in that position where 10 or 15 or 20 years later, someone comes back to me and says, I liked working with you and for you, then you have the raw material to be a manager. And from there, it's a, it's a question of making sure that you have the, the expertise to be able to deliver on your great intentions. Absolutely. That, that's, that's it. Exactly. And, you know, bringing this back full circle, back to the Peter principle, uh, so many times we, we hear people that, that make questions about folks and say, okay, well, uh, was this just a bad hire? You know, was this just not a, a person that should have been promoted or, or whatever? And in many cases, it, it's not that at all. It's just the simple fact that they have not had the training. We haven't spent the time, the energy, and the effort in helping them to develop as a leader. And that's really what can uh, can be done to to overcome this uh, this idea of the Peter principle in particular individuals, right? Well, that, that's uh, I think we probably overstayed our welcome here today, Rod. Let's uh, let's, uh, let's kind of wrap this up a bit here uh, as we as we begin to to close here. Uh, any any kind of closing thoughts here? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, management is a specialization. And people ought to be prepared for that specialization in the same way that they would be taught welding or accounting or marketing or any other area where you would have a certification. And I also believe that for those who supervise in industrial environments, it's a specialization within 
a specialization, by which I mean not only do you need to understand how human nature operates uh, as a supervisor, you need to understand that point that we talked about earlier, how does human nature operate in a potentially hazardous environment? Uh, when it's done well, I think it's just an exceptionally cool thing, whether you're talking about someone who is running flight operations on the deck of a Navy carrier or someone who is looking out for the night shift at a steel plant. What a cool position to be in to quite literally preserve health and life of people while having them gain a greater level of mastery and accomplishment. To, to the people for whom that is motivating, you absolutely ought to be looking to be a, a manager um, in a potentially hazardous environment. The world needs you. I think that's a good way to put that. The world does need those type of individuals. And, uh, and I think we're, we're missing that in a lot, a lot of cases. Well, Rod, thanks so much for being here today. I've enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully our listeners have as well. Thank you, Danny. It's been a pleasure. Uh, for our listeners, if you have other topics or other guests that you would like for us to discuss and, and, and talk to folks here on Safe Talk with Safe Start, uh, just drop me a line at uh, danny at safestart.com. That's D-A-N-N-Y at safestart.com. And uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and uh, pursue those uh, other podcasts for you. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks again to our guest, Rod Wagner. And uh, for Safe Talk with Safe Start, I'm Danny Smith, and have a great day.